Welcome everyone. Welcome to Satsang. And my, that was uh, a great chant. It really went off. You outdid yourselves. I got too high. I won't be able to give a talk now. I'll try. <clears throat> what was that? What did you say? <laughs> so I like to begin by quoting uh, my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every talk by saying in Hindi, Sabko Bharasanmani Kesat Premse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that was the essence of his message, to welcome other people with love and to welcome yourself with love. And the heart of his message was simple kindness, to be a kind person to others, to be a kind person to yourself. A person who's kind is already close to God. A person can be the biggest spiritual figure ever, but if he's not kind, he's just a phony. So practice kindness. <clears throat> I'm going to be mean to you all now. I was, um, <clears throat> I was uh, Googling some stuff on Kashmir Shaivism, and I came across a, a, a wonderful um, discovery. <clears throat> now, Kashmir Shaivism is the philosophy that Baba espoused. It's a non-dual uh, philosophy that says consciousness is fundamental to the universe, and that uh, consciousness contracts and then we become the contraction of that contraction, and we have to find a way to expand back to our original status as pure consciousness, full of bliss and full of joy. And there are two, there are two main schools of Kashmir Shaivism, which came from around the ninth century in Kashmir, India. A series of great beings created. And there are two schools called the Spanda School and the Pratibhigna School. And the Pratibhigna school is called the school of self-recognition, which says, just recognize who you really are. You're not your biography and your personhood and your dramas, your melodramas. You're something greater than that. You are Shiva. You are consciousness. You are the self behind all that. And it says you can do that in an instant through self-recognition. Uh, and then the Spanda school has a different approach. It's based on energy. It says that as you get closer to the self, there's a definite energetic that happens. You get an uplifting uh, energy, and that's called Spanda. We also call it Shakti. It's a powerful, uplifting, actual experience on the emotional level, on the interior level, an uplifting feeling. When you come to the ashram, you might feel that. That's the Spanda uh, principle. So I was looking up Spanda, and I got a shock. Because out in Perth, Western Australia, there is a big sculpture called Spanda. And here it is. Not bad. Let's see another one. Yeah. 
And it's, how big is it? 60, 60 Nine feet. Stories. Nine stories high. Wow. Go ahead. <clears throat> now, it's by an artist named Christian De Vitri. Um, and um, this is what it says. The title was inspired by De Vitri's experience with the Spanda teachings of Kashmir Shaivism. Spanda is a Sanskrit word meaning divine vibration or pulse. The term is used to describe how consciousness at the subtlest level moves in waves of contraction and expansion. Spanda, according to Kashmir Shaivism, is the creative pulse of the absolute as it manifests into the dynamism of relative form. It might be understood as the eternal desire to manifest. It is like an eternal spring joyfully overflowing and always full. I, when I think of the Spanda principle, I, I always think of um, uh, Ponce de Leon, who was a, a Spanish con uh, explorer of maybe the 16th century or the 15th century, who traveled out. He wound up in Florida looking for the fountain of youth. And Florida, of course, is where all the old people go. They're looking, they're looking for the fountain of youth, too. <clears throat> but what the fountain of youth is, is this principle of renewal and upliftment, which is the Spanda principle. And that if you look deep within, you might feel your life is boring and dull, dreary, but you haven't gone deep enough, is what that means. That if you go deep enough, no matter who you are, you can find this Spanda principle. It says uh, De Vitri is said to have designed the sculpture both as a formal embodiment of his Spanda principle and as a tool or means to experience it. So as a mandala, which you can contemplate and you feel the, the vibrations. <clears throat> and it turns out that he visited here uh, in uh, about 10 years ago and um, enough said. And so how's that? <clears throat> we need that in Melbourne now. Okay, yeah. thanks. <clears throat> so good on you. <laughs> What's his first name? Christian. Christian. Good on you, Christian. Well done. <clears throat> so tonight, um, as always, I, I like to draw on the teachings of the sages because the Spanda principle is though it's in plain sight, it's also hidden. And the custodians of that knowledge of the Spanda principle are the great yogis and the great beings of the earth. And so one of the secrets uh, of, the, of the universe is that this principle exists and that there are great beings who've attained the Spanda principle, who've attained that self. So I always salute them. It was an amazing discovery in my life to discover both that there was this principle of upliftment available and also that there were people who attained connect connection to that, absorption in that principle, and that I could go and find one and learn how to do it myself. <clears throat> so I always celebrate these great beings in these programs. And tonight, one of my favorites, one of the, of course, my very favorite is my guru and his guru, but the earliest one that I encountered way back in the 60s was this gentleman. That's George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. 
Uh, he's not Indian at all. He's uh, Middle Eastern, he's, uh, from Eastern Turkey. He's Turkish-Armenian, sage, and mysterious, inscrutable, complex, brilliant, extraordinary. Uh, he lived in the, he died around 1950, 1949, I think. So he lived uh, from the late 19th century into the 20th, and he did a lot of teaching. Uh, this is him as a young man, then later this is more like he appeared in, uh, in his later years. <clears throat> so Gurdjieff um, was a great figure. So I found out about him uh, in, the late, in the late 60s when I started becoming slightly interested in spirituality. He was the first one I uh, encountered. Shall I tell you this story? A friend of mine uh, was dating someone who was a Gurchifian. And she, um, she told me about it, that there's this man named Gurdjieff. And so I laughed. I said, Hank Kerchief. <laughs> Hank Kerchief. And I laughed. Later, I had to eat those words. Um, but that was my first. But then later, I became interested. A friend of mine introduced me to the book In Search of the Miraculous. Uh, which we've been studying in study group lately, and a wonderful book. <clears throat> he, um, he went to the East as a young man and went through uh, uh, different Sufi centers. Uh, that's Islamic mysticism. He studied apparently in Iran, India. Who knows? He might have gotten to Tibet. Um, and he studied with various people. He's written a book about it, but it's such a strange book that it's hard to trust because he was also, uh, pardon my language, a bullshitter. <laughs> was a that was part of his charm. He's very cute and very humorous. Uh, but he, but uh, he went to the East and he got this wisdom, which was extraordinary, and brought it back. And so these are some of teachings around uh, and involving Gurdjieff's. The first bit is from uh, C.S. Knott, who wrote a book about Gurdjieff's teachings, who studied with him for a long time in the, in the 20s, particularly in New York. Uh, Gurdjieff had a disciple who had the center in New York City. Gurdjieff himself visited New York City and caused a bit of a stir uh, in town, did, did uh, dances and practices in Carnegie Hall and places like that. <clears throat> but he had a main disciple who was uh, called uh, Oraj, A.R. Oraj. Yeah, this is A.R. Oraj. Now, he, he was an interesting figure because he comes from my other world, which is <clears throat> my previous uh, involvement in the literary world when I was uh, studying literature. Uh, and Oraj was the, uh, the founder and editor of a very famous literary magazine in England <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the 20s, or the teens maybe. And he introduced a lot of great writers. So he was friends with Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, and all these writers. And uh, he was a major figure in the literary scene in England. And suddenly he met Gurdjieff and he left it all and went to New York and started teaching Gurdjieff's 
teachings, and all the literary people freaked out. They didn't know what to make of it. But uh, this is an encounter with not an orage about free will. Ready? Okay, put him away. We'll, get, we'll do some others later. <clears throat> so I had a meeting in New York City of people interested in the work, and after the meeting, somebody asked Orage, does the system, Georgia's system, provide a technique for obtaining free will, and is there a clear statement or description of the system in print? Orage replied, there are two parts to this question. First, there's a definite technique or method for practical work on oneself, a definite way to, we would say, meditation or mantra, self-inquiry, a practical way of understanding. And this is what separates yoga from university education, which is purely intellectual. When it comes to yoga, you want something experiential, something that transformative. So there's that side of it. <clears throat> and he says there's also a theoretical side, as taught by Ospensky in London. Ospensky's one of Gurdjieff's major disciples, who is more of an intellectual. Uh, at the Prayeré, which is Gurdjieff's ashram near Paris, both are taught, but for new people, the work is mostly practical. Gurdjieff says that both the practical method and the theory are taught little by little. They're given out in bits and pieces, which have to be fitted and stuck together. You know, it is true that when you do sadhana, when you start to work on yourself, you get insights little by little. And you understand meditation and practice little by little. You don't get it all at once. You learn and you grow and then you get new insights and then you apply it and so it goes like that. <clears throat> he says, you have to stick it together. Gurdjieff says, you must make paste. Without paste, nothing will stick. So if you think you can get it quickly, uh, theoretically, it won't work. It ha you have to earn every uh, moment. He says, will and the acquiring of will is a great mystery. No one has ever seen will, willpower. But we've seen its manifestation in those who have it. Laraj said, Gurdjieff, for example, has tremendous will. It is the power to do. So the great beings have this ability to do. They're not at the mercy of forces outside themselves, of other people, or at the mercy of their own negative emotions. They're, they're centered in the self, and therefore they have the ability to do. Well, asked another, how would you put into words the technique by which will may be acquired? That's a very good question. How can we acquire will? Stability, so our mind is torturous with negativity and fear and other things. First of all, said Oraj, you must know that wrong will can be acquired. <clears throat> for example, a man wishes to have power over people for his own material ends. After some, after some time, something crystallizes in him, but wrong crystallization. Gurdjieff had the idea that you could attain a wrong crystallization. People who do the work, but there's ego involved, they become crystallized in the wrong way, so they're not truly helpful. 
and they get stuck at that point. <clears throat> he goes on, the method can be summed up in the following phrase, voluntary suffering and conscious labor. <clears throat> Intentional suffering, Gertrude used to talk about. And what, he, what Raj says here is very interesting, what that is. That gives you strange ideas, doesn't it? Voluntary suffering. Like listening to me speak. It's voluntary. <laughs> okay, just kidding. Voluntary suffering, he says, is compelling oneself to bear the unpleasing manifestations of others. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. You can think about that. Not to run, run from, not always seek the easy and the pleasant, but to hang in there and experience it and see if you can transform it in some way. <coughs> Conscious labor is the effort to sense, remember, and observe oneself. So there are two things. There's one is to do practice, to be aware of yourself. You could hear we'd say, say the mantra to remember yourself. That's the positive part. And the negative part is to put up with whatever life throws at you. Not fall apart when life comes at you as un unpleasant people, unpleasant events. To hang in there, be patient, and to learn how to let them go. To learn to forget. To learn to let things go past you. <clears throat> he says, it is the doing of small things consciously, the effort made against the inertia and mechanism of the organism. Not for personal gain or profit, not for exercise, health, sport, pleasure, or science, <clears throat> and not out of pique or like and dislike. <laughs> what did you like about that? It's like peak. <clears throat> so he says it's it's, <laughs> it's to do that. The reason you work on yourself is not for any of those reasons. Not for wealth or fame or popularity or anything, but for the sake of knowing yourself and for the sake of happiness. He says, self-remembering never becomes a habit. It is always the result of a conscious effort. Very small to begin with, but it increases with doing. So it's a conscious idea to know yourself, to remember the self. Gurdjieff used to talk about self-remembering, and he used to describe a two-way arrow, that normally our attention goes out to other people and to objects, and he said, at the same time you put that arrow out, put an arrow in, so remember yourself, because you're in the picture, I'm here, and, then, and this was his technique of self-remembering. I used to practice this a lot before I went to India, of remembering myself, and then and still operating in the world. You do that? Two-way arrow. Here you are, you see me, you see the, the room, and you're also aware of yourself. So bring your awareness to both. Okay. <clears throat> he says, a moment of self-remembering is a moment of consciousness. Can you see how that moment when you do that is qualitatively different from when the other, Gurdjieff would say, the other is like being asleep, a waking sleep. 
you're kind of unconscious, drifting along. But when you remember yourself, you become present. You become aware. <clears throat> he says, in the ordinary it's not in the ordinary sense of self-consciousness, but a consciousness of the real self, which is I, together with awareness of the body, the feelings, and the thoughts. So you remember both, if you talk in terms of subject and object, the subject over here, the object there, not just involvement with objects, but also remember the subject. And so that's his technique of self-remembering, wonderful technique. I practiced that in my early days uh, in India very intensely. Okay, now we have another bit. There are three bits tonight. Can you handle it? The next one's pretty heavy. But then the last part is light. <clears throat> and this one is from an old friend, Morris Nichol. He's another disciple of Gurdjieff who was an English psychoanalyst. Very sober man. He studied with Jung. He was a, a pretty distinguished psychoanalyst. Then he, he went to Paris and he worked with Gurdjieff and he became a teacher, very intelligent. <clears throat> I have a vo uh, like a six-volume set of his lectures. Uh, and this is from one of them. Um, and this is called Singing Your Song. <clears throat> Are you ready for this? Uh, I should say trigger alert. Is that what you say, trigger alert? What's another? Trigger warning. Okay, you ready? Nicole says, he used to teach in England. He taught uh, uh, every week he would give a lecture in, uh, at a, a sort of a, a house out in the country in England. <clears throat> he says, if you're going to exact psychologically every pound of flesh or every farthing from a man who owes you, that is, if you're going to make everyone apologize and make amends and eat the dust, then you'll be under the exacting law that Christ warns you to escape from. So it's saying, you know, making accounts. How many people owe you apologies? Hmm? And if you're going to insist that they, owe, that they come and apologize to you, then you're going to come under the law. What is the law? Jesus freed us from that law. The, the original law, the Old Testament law, is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus said, no, there's grace. We don't have to come under that. So, uh, so if, you, if you exact this from everyone, you want, uh, you want everyone to uh, apologize and, and do that, then you come under the old law. You're going to have to do that yourself. <clears throat> So better not to do it. He says, <clears throat> you'll put yourself in prison. That is under unnecessary laws. You will not get out until you've paid on your side for all your own faults. So if you're, if you're exacting about other people's faults, you'll have to pay for your faults. Isn't that interesting? That's scary, I'd say. <clears throat> But there is a law of mercy that is an influence higher than the literal law of an eye for an eye, which is the law of the man of violence. This is an example of 
putting yourself under new influences. This is the higher law that Jesus taught, but all the great beings teach of forgiveness, of kindness, that law. <clears throat> I'm always, I always think of the story of uh, uh, Eknot and the scorpion. I've told it before. But one day, uh, Eknot Maharaj, a great saint, was sitting by the river, and a scorpion fell in the river and was drowning. Eknot reached in, picked it up, and saved its life, whereupon the scorpion stung him, and he dropped it. When he dropped it in the river, it was drowning again, so Eknot reached in, picked it up again, and saved his life, whereupon the scorpion stung him. And he dropped him again into it. He picked it up, saved him again, and got stung again. A bystander said, hey, Eknot. <clears throat> no, whoever told it to me first said, and so they spent the day. <laughs> I love that. Said, hey, Eknot, why do you do that? It's an ungrateful creature. Every time you pick it up, it stings you. Why do you bother? Let it drown. And Eknot said, it's a scorpion's nature to sting, and it's my nature to save a drowning animal. So that's the higher law that he's talking about. It's a great story, isn't it? <clears throat> Did it really happen like that? <clears throat> if you want to put yourself under better influences, you must work on yourself. You must put yourself first under the influences of the work and try to obey them. That means you must hear and do the work. In the work, negative emotion, the work is yoga, practice, sadhana, work on yourself. In the work, negative emotions, internal considering means worrying about what other people think, making accounts, does this person, uh, does that, you know, it's an apology, this person, you know, uh, feeling violent, jealous, etc are not encouraged. <clears throat> now, if you make inner accounts, you feel always that someone owes you. Now, admit it, you, you feel people owe you, don't you? There are people you can find who owe you. <clears throat> try to think what this means, and then try to observe what it means in yourself, and then finally to do, to, to do what the work says, separate or detach. Remember, that this work is for those who really wish to work and change themselves, is not for those who wish to change the world. So it's not for political means, it's to really transform yourself so that you can practice forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, you get forgiveness. In that forgiveness, the burden of life is lifted from you. No one can work on himself without observing himself. <clears throat> that way he sees what he has to work on. You have to become aware of your inner world. The work is about what a person is psychologically. I'm going to speak about what Gurdjieff called singing your song. <clears throat> this is based on internal considering, the feeling that you're owed things by people. Everyone has a song to sing in this respect. If you really want to know what kinds of inner accounts you've made through your life, begin to notice the typical songs you sing. Sometimes people sing their songs without any encouragement. And sometimes after a few glasses of wine, they begin to sing openly. 
<clears throat> what are some songs like, uh, oh, here, he goes into it. They sing about how badly they've been treated, about how they never had a real chance. They sing about their past glories, about how no one understood their difficulties, about how they married wrongly, about how their parents did not understand them, <laughs> about how nice they really are, about how they've been underappreciated and misunderstood, and so on. And all this means <clears throat> how everyone is to blame except themselves. Great stuff, isn't it? You know that song? All this is making inner accounts, or rather as a result of making accounts. It is one form of internal considering. Internal considering, that's a whole topic. <clears throat> Why is it necessary to notice these songs and then to observe them, to push them away out of a central position in one's life until they're sung only on rare occasions, in faint voice, and perhaps finally never? In the, in the form, they call it, what, your racket, don't they? Is that it? That's the song, your racket. You just <clears throat> They cripple you inside. That's the reason. They actually are terrible. They're habits that you've gotten, feeling sorry for yourself, uh, you know, and, and they cripple you. <clears throat> they take energy. We would say they just take away your shakti. A good singer cannot go beyond himself. He is a victim of his own account making. As soon as anything is difficult, he begins singing. <clears throat> this stops him. He cannot grow. So instead of <clears throat> pardon me, meeting a situation, he starts singing the song, so he can't do anything. <clears throat> he perhaps begins to weep. He cannot change his level of being. He cannot get beyond being crippled by sad songs. Instead of working on himself in some difficult situations, he begins to sing at once, perhaps very nicely and quietly. <clears throat> if he's criticized or spoken too sharply, he begins to pity himself, gets furious and feels he's not understood, and so on, and then he begins to sing, either softly to himself or to others, especially to people who will listen to him. You have a singing group and you sing with them. <clears throat> yeah, it happens. Often a person makes friends with another person only because it is easy to sing this, uh, sing his or her song to him. Or after the latter suddenly tells him in so many words to shut up, he is so deeply offended he goes in search of a new friend, a person who will really understand him or her. It's very psychologically accurate, you know. Is this painful to hear? It's, it's heavy medicine, isn't it? But it's very accurate. David, what do you think? Great song. <clears throat> you good with it? Yeah. Very huh? Very so insightful. So insightful. And although they do not sing their songs openly, perhaps they do, do them secretly. They feel an inner sadness, a sense of monotony, a kind of inner tiredness or frustration around which thoughts gather. And they also stand in one's way, and very often they're not observed, though they're all the time secretly eating one's life. Of course, I call this tearing thoughts. <clears throat> whenever you feel depressed, whenever you feel uh, full of worry, and so on, it means 
your brain is being eaten by tearing thoughts. These, some song is being sung inside of you, whether by habit, you know, you've done it all your life, you were taught that, and it's something inside that needs to be, first of all, seen. It's interesting, Ambika talking about being seen. You should see these tearing thoughts. You have to see them, and then you can get rid of them. He says, only deeper self-observation will reveal them. All self-observation is to set light in to oneself, to bring light in. Nothing can change in us unless brought into the light of self-observation, that is, into the light of consciousness. And all self-observation is to make us more conscious of what is going on in us. To be conscious is good. It's a bit courageous to be really conscious, to look directly into what is, but it's very necessary if you want to grow spiritually. And now he tells a great story. Uh, Who's talking? Nicole. On one occasion, I was sitting with Mr. Ospensky. He was Ospensky's student also. We had been silent. He looked up at me with a smile and asked me why I was so sad. I said, I did not know that I was. He said, it is a habit. You're listening to some eyes that are singing some sad, faraway song. So part, part of your personality is singing some sad, faraway song, perhaps a song without words, or words you've quite forgotten. <clears throat> Sometimes the person is in that mood, they don't know it. There's some song being sung. Try to observe it, he said. It takes force from you, and it's quite useless. It sucks your energy out. And he added, this is an example of the moon eating you, being eaten by the moon. This is a very Gurchifian idea. Gurchif's idea, I'm not going to explain it or justify it, but he said that we should be eaten by the sun, but we should eat the moon. If the moon eats us, wrong direction. (laughs) But in practical terms, it means you're imprisoned by negative thoughts fears and anger and uh, depression, then you're being eaten by the moon. All these negative thoughts have come in. He goes on, sometimes the work says we must sacrifice something in order to grow. What is it we must sacrifice? We must sacrifice our suffering. We express our suffering often in these songs, articulate and inarticulate. So you have to give up your suffering and become joyous and happy. The songs are strange little sad private relationships we have with ourselves <laughs> that steal force from us that we do not notice because they are habits. You like that? <clears throat> it's very good. I don't sing any songs like that. So very interesting. <clears throat> Now, maybe I should stop there. I've got one good story, but I'll, I'll save it for next time. Okay. I think that's enough. <clears throat> I'll save it. That way I have to work less hard. I have a story already ready. <laughs> All right. So let's leave it at that. that I can't meditate on a sad song. All right, let's, let's well, give us something. No. You see... 
when you when you meet the guru and then you encounter the yoga and you read the scriptures, the scriptures teach you a joyous song, a completely different song. It's the song of the Spanda principle. It's the song of the self. It's the song of love, the song of joy, the song of upliftment. And we've been trained to believe that there's just life is always ebbing away and we're not getting what we want. Speaking of which, I just remembered, Yogi Sri just uh, signed a contract with his book's going to be published. It's a um, science fiction book. And so he's... And I hear there's a Swami character in it. <laughs> and he told me on the Darshan line, in the, in the sequel, the Swami has an even bigger role. <laughs> I'll be reading that very, what's the word, carefully. <laughs> and Devi Ma has a line in it. She says, Swamiji, I'm bored. <laughs> I don't know, is that true? <laughs> what? I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. Uh -uh. Anyway, congratulations on that. <clears throat> Next, you can work on your spiritual memoir. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get in let's uh, let's get in touch with the the song the the, the song of the Akash, the song the Bhagavad Gita, the Chittakash Gita, the song of God, the song of songs, the song of the self, and that also exists within us. But we have to dig a little deeper below the uh, personality, below our habits, to the self. And it's there. It's the place of I am. It's the place of Om Namah Shivaya. It's the place of love and kindness and softness and peace and stillness that's within every one of us. So we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. And in meditation, we let our songs quiet down. We don't listen to those songs. We sing, we listen to the higher song. We connect with that. If you've never meditated before, you can use the mantra of our lineage, Om Namah Shivaya, and repeat it to yourself and let other thoughts dissolve. Just keep repeating that. Om Namah Shivaya is a great song. It says, I bow to the self. I bow to inner consciousness. So we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. Once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satguru Maharaj Ki Jai. Let's meditate now. <laughs> 